Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. I haven't been here on a Sunday for a couple of weeks, so I may be new to it. But in case you haven't seen, outside the road is no longer 60 kilometres an hour. It's 50 kilometres an hour. So be careful and leave earlier for church. (laughs) Next Sunday. So you're only five minutes late, not ten minutes late. We've been uh, moving over the last months our way through the Gospel of Luke and uh, for Pastor Mark to ask me to speak from the passages has been really exciting because I love Luke. It's probably my favourite book. And uh, we come to a really interesting place. It's... um, You imagine a couple of books together and a couple of bookends and between two bookends of human silliness, we're going to see a book that actually shows us more about how Jesus is in control of the things we do and the world around us, even though it looks like because of the bookends, the world's falling apart. So it's my prayer that this will be a an encouragement to you as we look at it in a maybe a little different way. Because if you turn, if you've got your Bibles with you, um, turn to Luke chapter 22, we're going to read about half the, or, or have a look at about half the, uh, the book, uh, half the chapter, but I don't want to read the whole lot, so we'll move our way through it and you might like to have your scriptures with you to go through it together. But I will read the first six verses. The festival of unleavened bread, which is also called Passover, was approaching. The leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting how to kill Jesus, but they were afraid of the people's reaction. Then Satan entered into Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12 disciples, and he went to the leading priests and captains of the temple guard to discuss the best way to betray Jesus to them. They were delighted and they promised to give him money. So he agreed and began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus so they could arrest him when the crowds weren't around. Oh dear, what a lousy bookend to begin a sermon on. Pretty depressing words. But as we look back through Luke's writings, we actually see that Jesus had become a great threat to the authority and the power of the religious leaders. Many times uh, men had come in the history of Israel proclaiming that they, would, they were the promised Messiah. This is going to give me Jack all day. We'll see how we go. Many people had come along. Uh, saying that they had come to fulfil the, uh, the words of the prophets and uh, that they were the Messiah. Because the scriptures had talked about it, that God was going to raise up Israel and would bring them a king that stood on the majesty of David and Solomon, which was the time when the, the Israelite empire was at its greatest. The borders were at its largest and this was going to happen again according to the scriptures. But it seemed an amazing call at that stage in history because for several centuries uh, the the Jewish people had been occupied by first the Greek Empire and then the Roman Empire. And and something like a Messiah, though badly needed, seemed to be 
farthest away than any dream that they could have dreamed. But as we've been going through the book of Luke, we've seen Jesus who spent most of his time in the northern areas, which is interesting because there was a mix between Jewish people and, and Gentile people. Jesus just didn't stay with the Jewish people. But we've seen him over the last uh, months as we've been going through this, that Jesus had spent a time and grown quite a large following, in fact, of people from that region. He'd made a couple of trips to Jerusalem, but spent most of his time up in the north. But about halfway through the book of Luke, Luke says Jesus steadfastly or resolutely turned his face toward Jerusalem. He had a purpose in going. And so did his disciples. They thought he was going to do something miraculously because they were convinced he was Messiah, despite all these others that had come before him and had faded away or been, been uh, taken and, and done away with by the authorities. They thought Jesus, because of the miracles that he performed, he was even able to raise the dead, was showing that he was the Messiah that the scriptures had spoken about. This man had power over life and death in a way like no other. And so as Jesus made his way toward Jerusalem, for what he knew was going to be a very different outcome, physically speaking, the crowds were becoming increasingly crowded as Jewish pilgrims also made their way to Jerusalem for the coming annual Passover feast. That Passover festival marked the beginning of a new year, but was also the greatest celebration in the calendar. It celebrated a past event. That was God's rescue of his people from Egypt some 1,500 years earlier. This was both a part of their culture and their religion. The whole year revolved around the Passover festival. And many of those making up the crowds that year, I think, would have been those who followed Jesus. They followed him because of his preaching, but they also probably followed him because he'd made them well or he'd performed some miracle in their lives, and this man was worth following. Jesus had healed the sick. He'd healed the lame and the blind along the way. Others probably saw what Jesus was doing and saying, no other person has, has acted like this. This man is worth following. So why not take the opportunity to travel with Jesus as he made his way the 170, 150 kilometres down alongside the Jordan, through Jericho, up over the hills into Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And we're told by many commentators that there was something strange that was happening, in fact, across the Middle East at this time. There was, in fact, an increasing interest in the topic of Messiah. The biblical prophecies had talked about this for a long time, and the people were becoming restless. They were sick of the Greek occupation and now the Roman occupation and many no doubt have been praying to God for this Messiah to come and relieve them of all of these problems. The Roman occupiers knew about this. They knew that Passover was, was a very national uh, program, a very national event and of course people became very patriotic and it was a dangerous time for the Romans. Pilate, the governor at the time, had made his way from his uh, normal resort come seat uh, at Caesarea on the, on the Mediterranean. He'd made his way especially to Jerusalem and was garrisoned there. He'd brought extra troops with him because this was the time, if any, in the year that the people would rise up against them. 
So they were getting ready. They were getting prepared for trouble. It was interesting too because the population of Jerusalem, normally at most around 70,000 people from day to day, would expand considerably during the Passover time. William Barclay tells us that there are records of one Passover where during the Passover festival, 256,000 lambs were sacrificed during the festival. That would have made the population in Jerusalem to be around 2.7 million people. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, Jerusalem's, the actual walled city of Jerusalem is a very small area. And so Jerusalem at the time when Jesus arrived would have been incredibly crowded. The season was late spring, the weather was probably fine, and crowds of families would have camped across the Mount of Olives and in the districts surrounding the city. There were people hanging off the rafters. You know, the, the prices, no doubt, of all the hotels and occupation accommodation areas probably would have gone through the roof. People were everywhere. So you can see why the Romans were pretty nervous, but you could also see why, as Luke records, the religious leaders were nervous because they knew that Jesus was coming. That spelled trouble. But they also knew that part of the trouble was that these huge crowds, many of them, were very pro-Jesus. So they had to work out a way. How were they going to try and get rid of Jesus before he could do anything in their thinking that was dangerous without raising the crowd? They were worried. They'd already had several confrontations, if you remember, over the last couple of weeks with Jesus in the temple. And each time Jesus had answered their questions, but each time the religious leaders, these authoritarian characters, were never able to answer Jesus' questions. They always came away looking like the fool. This was a problem. Many of the people would have noticed this because they had come to him and were favourable to his cause. Now, many of these people expected that Jesus would somehow use his miraculous powers to rise up and to defeat these corrupt religious and political powers, to rid their nation of the hated Romans and to set up this new expected earthly state of Israel. That was the disciples' thinking. They believed he was Messiah, but they thought he was here to do a job on earth. And so did many of the other followers. In their eyes, the authorities believed that Jesus was teaching a false religion and had to go. They also saw that he was a clear affront to their authority, to their power, to their prestige within the community. So they did what those who are losing any argument tend to do. They yelled louder and they became violent. And so we've set the scene. You can begin to see just how tense the situation was becoming. And into this scene, Luke introduces a strong spiritual element. For this struggle between the religious leaders and Jesus was not just religious and political, though on the surface it may have seemed this way. For in the background, but certainly of far greater importance to the history of the nations of the world, and to you and me in particular, was this spiritual battle taking place among the principalities 
and powers not of this world. Only Luke mentions that Satan entered into Judas at this time. It's an interesting part of the story. What did Luke mean by that? Did Judas have any control over these events? Or was he suddenly overpowered against his will? Was he an innocent victim in all of this? We read elsewhere, however, that Judas was a less than honest person. He, in fact, was the treasurer of the group of followers that, that, that hung around Jesus, that Jesus had built around him. But as treasurer, of course, he had access to the funds. And John tells us that uh, Judas had this amazing habit every now and again of slipping his hand into the money bag for his own purposes. He was not the most honest of treasurers to have on your committee. And it appears that maybe the offer of monetary reward would be too much for Judas to refuse. Certainly the, the idea was introduced by Satan, but Judas agreed to the temptation. In Judas' actions, we see an all-too-familiar human element in this story. The book of Romans tells us all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And that the penalty for this is both physical and spiritual death. However, because of the events about to unfold, we will see that, as it also says in Romans, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the tragic death and glorious resurrection of Jesus that we now look back on makes us very wise in hindsight as we look at that crucifixion story. The people of the time didn't have it then, but we have it today. And because of all Jesus went through, we have a certain hope for the future, even as we sang that in our hymns today. Now, it would be too easy for us to condemn Judas too quickly. How could Judas have possibly done something like this after hanging around Jesus for three years, seeing all the things that the other disciples had seen? How could he turn so quickly? Wasn't he convinced that Jesus was Messiah? I actually want to put a theory across. This is the gospel according to Bob, okay? So you can take it or leave it. But as I read the scriptures, I just wonder, Judas, you see, was a zealot. That was the political party that he went for at the time. The word zealot comes from a Greek word meaning zealous or enthusiastic. And in Jesus' time, the term referred to members of a militant Jewish sect that wanted to resist the Romans any way they could, and they often did violently. I wonder if Judas, of all the disciples, was the first to realise that even though Jesus may have been Messiah, that Jesus coming to Jerusalem was not going to be for a physical kingdom. I wonder if Judas was a bit sharper than everybody else. And his reaction, realising that Jesus was not coming to get rid of the Romans, was something that infuriated him. I think that's a pretty common human reaction. When you get disappointed, we become angry. We've followed you. I've followed you, Jesus, for three years and you're not going to do what I stand for? I wonder if Judas, in seeing this, decided to teach Jesus a lesson by selling him to the authorities. Yes, speculation on my part, but to me it works. 
So did Judas, did Satan enter Judas? Well, yes, but as I said earlier, with his permission. And here we see what the evil can do, the depths that a person can go and will go to to destroy God's creation. Here we see the unfortunate darker side of human nature. But suddenly Luke moves to what we now see and take to be one of the most positive aspects of the salvation story, what we now call communion. This is the bit in between the bookends of humanity and frailty that we see in this story. In the passage today, we read of the Last Supper. I'm not going to read it because we're probably so familiar with it already. But I'd like to point out a few things through it. At this meal, Jesus' last meal that he shared with his friends before his execution, we note several new ideas that Jesus brought to the table. You remember they were in an upper room, just 12 people, not even a servant with them, just 13 of them, Jesus and the 12 disciples. How do we know there were no servants? Because Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Why? Because that was normally a servant's job. But Jesus did it. Now, when the Mosaic covenant was given, some many, many years before, so that was given on, the, on Mount Sinai, it was a huge public event where God appeared to all the people of this new nation of Israel in a huge black cloud which descended over them. This was a super public event. When Moses disappeared up at Mount Sinai and came back with the two big tablets of the, of the basics of the law written on it, it was a big event. But here Jesus was making a new covenant, a new covenant between God and men. Does it surprise you that he did it when only 12 people were in the room? Why wouldn't he have gone up to the temple and broadcast it to those many hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people? Why would he just share it with 12 people if it was such a world-changing event? It would become later, become public. And you know what? Maybe that was the right way. Because as time has gone by down through the centuries, what first was revealed to 12 men who really didn't understand what was being said anyway, was in a very short time going to be promoted broadly with miracles and great sayings and preaching and people were going to be coming to Jesus in great numbers. I don't think Jesus, that we can be harsh towards these men in not getting the idea of what Jesus was about. To Jesus, this was everything. To meet with his, his friends, his closest friends, and to share with them what this new covenant was all about. And they were about to see Jesus defeat the corruption in their nation. They believed that they were about to be appointed to some rather important religious and political post in Jesus' new kingdom. So even as Jesus was sharing these new ideas, they weren't even in a mind to hear what Jesus was saying. How frail, how human were these men? You know, as I was coming this morning, I'm thinking, what if Jesus had chosen 12 women? Would that have been better? I wonder. I'm not even sure whether that would have been the case. Because that's what the people were taught. That's what they were expecting. This Passover that they celebrated together was a meal. Most of us are familiar with the, the form it took. 
It was the most important meal, in fact, in the Jewish calendar. It remembered God's salvation of the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt. And the rules stated that each person or family must bring an animal before God to be sacrificed on their behalf. That that animal would die for the sins that they had committed against God and each other over the past year. They would then be considered forgiven by God only till the next year when they had to do it all again. But here was Jesus making an announcement, declaring that just as the sacrifice of the Passover lamb gave the Jewish people forgiveness of the sins, the events that were about to unfold in the coming hours would bring changes that in fact would affect the world. Not the Jewish people, not just the Jewish people, but the entire world, not just once a year, but forever. Jesus hinted at the spiritual aspect of his coming death, even though at the time his friends did not understand a thing of what he was saying. And again, we see this incredible humanity in these events. Judas had fallen to temptation of money and power. And we're about to see that the other disciples also reacted to these events in very human ways, just as you and I would, I think, given the same circumstances. And Jesus began during the meal to speak about what was coming. And he explained why this meal had such significance. In fact, he even spoke about being betrayed by one of these 12 men. What? Betrayal? Who would think of such a thing? And immediately the disciples forget what Jesus is saying and start talking amongst themselves. Who would do that? Why would they do that? Would it be, is it you, is it me? And they started to get together and actually started quarrelling with each other. Not so much saying who was likely to do it, but who is the greatest? Let's see if we can eliminate each person and work out who it is that's really at the bottom of the list that would do this dastardly deed. It becomes a test of one-upmanship. How human. The discussion became an argument about power. Who, in fact, was the best disciple? not just the worst disciple. And John tells us in his, in his account of these proceedings, we read the familiar words of Peter, who firmly confident that he, of course, was at the top of the list, declares his unswerving loyalty to Jesus. Lord, I'm ready to die for you. Only to be corrected by Jesus' statement that very soon Peter and the rest of you will run away and Peter, you in fact will deny me, not once, but three times. So easy, we turn and fail. One moment we're speaking of godly issues, and the next we're silent in defending our faith. But friends, the great news with Jesus is that failure is not final. For as Jesus restated the Passover meal, he explained that he, in his death, would replace the Passover lamb this was not just for the Jews, but for the whole of humanity. And that in his sacrifice, this would be a greater sacrifice because it would be once for all, for all people, for all time. Such is God's love for us that he allowed only one had to die in order to pay for our sins and that God the Father provided that one to be sacrificed. Such profound thoughts. 
but only to be swamped by the petty discussions and arguments by the disciples. They had missed the point completely and would only realise what it meant in the coming days. And so Jesus prepares to go to his betrayal. By this time, John tells us, Judas had slipped out of the meal and made his way to tell the chief priests where they would find Jesus. They knew Jesus went, would normally go to a special place on the Mount of Olives to spend the night. And there the soldiers could arrest Jesus away from the crowds. For the religious leaders, this was a great windfall. This could not have been a better situation. No wonder it says they rejoiced. An insider would take them directly to Jesus. And if anything went wrong, they could always blame him. Couldn't have been easier. But Jesus' final words here are really important. Jesus spoke in serious terms of just how their world would change. Fellas, he said, this is not going to be easy over the coming next coming days. Once you're able to go out and everything was provided for you, it's going to be harder from now on. He spoke metaphorically about the need to be ready. He even mentioned that you might need a sword occasionally. Quickly, the men looked around. Oh, they counted. We've got two swords. Think about it. We've got two swords. So what? Even if Jesus was going to somehow miraculously overthrow the Roman Empire, what good was two swords going to be? But Jesus was speaking metaphorically. He didn't need swords. And he says such a Jewish thing. You know what he said? Enough already. Fellas, stop worrying about it. Stop thinking about it. Stop outthinking yourselves. Stop jumping to conclusions. I am here. Everything is in control. It may look like the world is about to fall to pieces, but I am here. Enough already, for it was enough. Maybe too much information for the men to absorb at that time. You see, Jesus was always in control. Even standing before Herod and Pilate, bound and beaten, he was in control. Even as he hung on the cross, he talks to John and his mother. Again, he was in control. And the risen Jesus is in control today. Among the men we've just observed, power squabbles, people jumping to conclusions, people pointing at each other but not to themselves. But we will see men who claim to love Jesus deny them they even knew him. But at times are we not the same? As we reflect, we so easily see ourselves in all our frailty, despite every effort that we make to follow Jesus. But because of Jesus, failure is not final. Instead, forgiveness is available. And God's enabling by his Holy Spirit continues our walk with him every day. What's our takeaway this morning? I think Jesus' words, enough already, is a great takeaway. Why is it enough? Because Jesus is in control. If you follow him, he is in control. When we're disillusioned with people, when we're frustrated by our own foolish thoughts and actions, 
when we become angry about ourselves or others, when we feel unloved or undervalued by others, enough already. Jesus is still there. We can pray the lament that we prayed earlier today. Why? Because enough already, Jesus is there, as Ian pointed out. We can go in prayer. And those of us who know and love the Lord Jesus know that failure is not final. One day we'll go to be with him. Friends, what's a takeaway? It could not be better than to leave this place confident in the sacrifice that Jesus made, being big enough and all time once for all enough for us to seek forgiveness, help and strength in the Lord God Almighty. Where are you today? Where are you? How do you see Jesus and how does he see you? He doesn't see you as a failure. Failure is done away with by the cross. And so as we go through the tough times, through the the self-doubt, through the put-downs by other people and not being believed in, Jesus believes in you. He believed in that motley bunch of 12 men, even the one that was going to betray him. He'll believe in us. Let's pray. Our loving God, thank you for this reminder that you are in control, that regardless of what is happening around us or on the news, in the public events, war, rumours of war, droughts and famines, tough times, bills that we can't pay, whatever it is, even our own frailty as we try to live as children of God and fail. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you say in our lives, enough already, I am here, let me take control and I will see you through. I'll see you through to eternity and I look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for this this hope that comes out of such a tragic story of failure. That in all of that, Jesus was in control. Didn't force himself on those men. Didn't force himself on the people around him, but was still in control. Thank you for that assurance, Father. And may that make a difference to our week ahead. In Jesus' wonderful name, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.